Excellent singing this morning. Thank you. It's a joy. I love, I love being in this space and singing with all of you. It's, it's good to come and sing together. Uh, in Belize, I got to teach on the book of Hebrews, all of it, and I allotted myself 40 to 50 minutes, took maybe an hour, 16, I think it was, to clock, clocked myself, did that in two hours for the students at boot camp, and uh, for you all, if you remember, if you were here, it took us like two, two and a half years, something like that, and trying to take all of that and shrink it to various sizes, it's interesting to think about worship. Uh, in prayer and reading and different things we've sung about today, there's been that, that idea that, or even in just we gather to pray beforehand. You're welcome to join us by that. It's in my office, 9.15 if we have training hour, 9, 9.15, 10.15. Uh, we'd love to have you come and just join us. We just pray for the gathering. Just whoever comes, you're welcome to join us. If it gets too big, we'll move somewhere else or divide up. But anyway, as we were praying about that and thinking about worship, that, that God has made us worshipers. So there's something in the image of God in humanity that has made us worshipers. And there's a lot of similarities that happen across people groups, across time, about worship, that it generally ends up centering that there are certain people doing a certain job at a certain place on behalf of others for worship. So the Mayans, right? They have their temple pyramids, just like the Egyptians would have had temples, just like other people would have had these high places where the normal people would go so that someone else, a priest or whatever other term, would offer sacrifices for them because they couldn't approach God on their own. And then Hebrews takes that because we see that over the course of the Old Testament law. Uh, we see, for instance, stories about David uh, in first, early parts of 1 Samuel, also in 1 Chronicles. I was uh, thinking about this this morning. 1 Chronicles uh, 14, 13, excuse me. David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the city where he lives, where he had set up a tent, like the tabernacle. Uh, it wasn't there because God's people had treated it like it was like some sort of a superstitious powerhouse. And God said, I'm not, you don't treat me like that. Uh, so Hophni and Phinehas, which were Eli's wicked priestly sons, they were killed. The Ark was taken, and it goes and shows that God is powerful regardless of the box to the Philistines. Uh, then it goes and it rests. And then David's king, you know, gener a couple generations later, and he's like, I want, I want the Ark here. Uh, the visible presence of, of God in the center of his people for worship, right? The whole tabernacle, the, the worship centered around those priests at that place offering sacrifices on behalf of people in the presence of God that was demonstrated by that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God in the most holy place entered just on the Day of Atonement. So even in the Old Testament law, you had specific people, the priests doing a specific job offering sacrifices at a specific place. And whenever there was something that shifted around that, trying it at a different place or trying it with different people or trying different sacrifices, it didn't go well. Uh, but David is desperate to get the ark there. And so they have a big ceremony uh, to bring the ark and they build a really nice new cart. Uh, and they have uh, Uzzah and Ohio. Oh no, Ohio. This was a bad driver, so I thought it was Ohio. Uh, <laughs> Ohio. 
They're driving the cart, new cart, new oxen, special ceremony. It stumbles, the oxen stumble, the ark starts to tip. Uzzah reaches back, touches the ark. Text says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God killed him on the spot. And it says David's angry at God and David's afraid of God. And so they just leave it there for three months. David goes back. It seems that time he's installed as king in a special way, and he conquers Jerusalem, sets up Jerusalem as the new city of David. Once again, though, he's just like, I've got to have the ark here. We need the presence of God because we need to worship in that specific place with those specific people doing that specific job. But worship was a priority for David, where he was willing, in a sense, to uh, overcome his fear, well, submit, repent of his anger, uh, submit in fear of the Lord to God's plan, which was not put it on a cart, but have the priests carry it. And First uh, Chronicles 15 talks about the fact that they did it right this time, according to the law. David wants the presence of God there so that they can worship. Specific people, the priests doing a specific job, animal sacrifices at a specific place, the tabernacle or the temple. Then we get to Hebrews a few thousand years later, where Hebrews makes the point that Christ is the person, better priest, who offers a better sacrifice, not an animal, but himself, the fulfillment of all sacrifices, not in an earthly tabernacle, but in a heavenly temple, right? Not with the shadows of these things made by man, but, but the reality of them made by God himself. So he's a better priest offering a better sacrifice at a better temple. And that's the center of our relationship with God. That's the point that Hebrews is making. And it takes a long time in an amazing book to make that whole case. But then what about us? Do we still rely on other people to offer sacrifices on our behalf somewhere else? So we're talking about ourselves as a church. What is the church? Who are we as a church? Gone through it throughout July. Now we're into August, a couple more weeks uh, on this series to try to draw attention. And this week, I really want to center on the fact that we as a church, we are worshipers. But really, everybody's a worshiper. Often, almost exclusively idolatrous worshipers, worshiping someone else, some other way other than the one true and living God. And there's, a, there's an unfaithfulness, there's an adultery that accompanies the worship of someone other than the one true and living God who deserves our worship. So we are all worshipers. And I was trying to like, okay, what is worship? It's one of those words, faith, salvation, uh, holiness. We can say them, but what, do we, what does it mean? And so you, you know, Google it, right? Definition of worship. Something comes up and it was, it was like adoration of a, of a deity or a god. Okay, didn't really help that much, but got me thinking a little bit about it. And I think with all of those other situations of worship and all these other, think, I mean, really, think of a people group uh, across time, across history, right, across cultures where it really does follow certain patterns. But I think that the worship of all other gods starts with the worshiper. The worshiper uh, going to that, that priest, going to that place, going with those sacrifices to try to get the attention of a god. 
Maybe to try to earn favor or keep favor or appease anger. And then it's a question of will, will that God respond favorably? And then it starts a little bit of a cycle in the relationship between God and the worshiper. But I think that with all other religions, with all unbiblical worship, that the cycle starts with the worshiper to which the God responds. But biblical worship doesn't start with us. Biblical worship starts with God. God who shows grace to his people, and then we respond to that. God initiates the relationship. He always has. He reveals himself to his people with abundant grace. And then there are responsibilities and different aspects, things that flow out of that relationship, but it's, it's never to try to, to gain. It's always because we have. Uh, we could look at, you know, you look at the Ten Commandments passage, popular passage, right? It's like, you, you know, you shall, you shall, you shall not, you shall not, right? All those different things. But the chapter before that is God saying, remember what I did. Have you ever caught that that's the order of those things? It's like, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand, with an outstretched arm. I am your redeemer. Enter Ten Commandments. But do you see that that's not kind of like, all right, well, do your best, and then maybe I'll be nice. It's not how God interacts with people. And you could start all the way to the beginning, go all the way to the end. It always starts with the grace of God poured out to us. And as Christians, it's the grace of God we see has always been through the person of Jesus Christ. So our worship, better definition than just adoration of a deity, is somewhere else that I read, which is, you know, our response to a gracious God. So if we're going to worship biblically, I think two questions flow from that, which is what has God done for us? How has he shown us grace? And then how are we to respond to those type of things? Interestingly, the New Testament uh, talks less about worship than the Old Testament does. Like the word isn't found as commonly. I thought that was interesting. It's there, but it's not as common of a concept word-wise in the New Testament as it is in the Old. And the reason I mention Uzzah and David overcoming that right, repenting of that anger, uh, overcoming that fear to be like, no, I want God's presence here. Because in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, where they bring the ark, they do it right in chapter 15, it comes, it's placed in the tent, which is the tabernacle. Uh, There's a a feast offered to the people. Um, A loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins uh, that's provided for them. All the men and women of Israel, they're all gathered Uh, Not just to stand in fear of God, but to to celebrate the presence of God in their midst so that they could worship. And then David uh, institutes the Levites, certain Levites, to be the temple choir. And the song in 1 Chronicles 16 that's offered uh, is like a medley of a few different psalms, which I also find interesting. uh, That it's not all of them, not just like not all 150 psalms, that would be really long. It's going to have the psalms for there. Uh, But he grabs pieces of it. And kind of combines them together, the authors that did this. It starts in Psalm 105, then it jumps to Psalm 96, does Psalm 96 in its entirety, then jumps to the end of Psalm 106. And so, obviously, the Psalms teach us about worship. Is that really surprising to anyone? Like, oh, is that what that's for? Okay. Can you turn to Psalm 96 with me? Because I want to learn 
about worship. I want to I learn about this, our response to our gracious God. And we learn about this even in Psalm 96. But you can think about uh, everything that David had experienced to this point, even just personally in his life, in his, his conflicts with Saul, in becoming king, even in, we could say, his conflict with God, in his leading his people to offer unacceptable worship, which cost Uzzah his life. But then, right, they, they follow what God had said, and they come, and David sings this, or has it sung, to the people of God. Psalm 96, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord... O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar, and all that fills it. Let the field exult, and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in his faithfulness. Sing to the Lord a new song. Not just this song. But every time we see God working in redemption, deliverance, forgiveness of his people, we have new reasons to be singing God's praise. All of the earth is called to do that. This is so interesting because like the kingdom in 1 Chronicles is just being established, right? Jerusalem is a new city. David's reign is young. And so there's this center point of Jerusalem, right, that The temple hasn't even been built yet, right? That centerpiece of Israelite worship where the nations were supposed to come together eventually, but it's all there. It's very exclusive. And yet David in the temple first arriving in Jerusalem makes a big deal that it's not just Jews that are supposed to be singing praise to God. So there's these hints that worship is going to be spread. It's not just Jewish worshipers, let alone just the priests worshiping on behalf of other people or worshiping through the priests, but the worship was never going to just stay. It's supposed to spread. It spreads to all of creation, like the sea and the trees and all these other nations happening. Then then the heavens are also included in it. It's like worship is never going to just be contained in this one little place. We're responding to our gracious God who has acted and revealed himself to us first. And so it talks about his act of creation that we respond to 
Even in creation, there's grace. This is interesting. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you still are a recipient of the grace of God and have been every day of your life. Uh, Laura Beth read from Acts 17 as Paul preaches. He went into a pagan nation, right? Middle of Athens, center of pagan Greek worship, filled with temples and idols. People who were saying, oh, hey, we got to worship, I don't know, any god, every god. But specific people, priests, off doing specific things, sacrifices in a specific place. We'll have an altar for each of them. And he's like, you've got to get away from this. It's like, right, God's been merciful to you, but you're, you're breathing because of him. Not because of Zeus, not because of this other god, this unknown god, the one that you don't know, just as a catch-all. Well, he is the one who made heaven and earth. In him you live, in him you move, in him you have your very being. Whether you uh, know who Jesus is, whether you know Jesus as your Savior or not, this is true of you. Uh, you are not keeping your heart beating. Right? You are not actually keeping your breath going or your brain working. You are a product of the grace of God, the God who made you, the God who is keeping you alive at this very moment. Every, not just every human being, every living thing in all of the universe is a recipient of what we could call just sort of this common grace of God in the fact that we are alive, that we have food we have drink, sunshine and rain, night and day, all of those different things. The recipients of God's grace, every single one of us, and it's only true of God that he does those things. It's not from anyone else. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Love verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness or in holy attire. That just sounds so fancy. Sometimes I want to say it and not think about it. What does it mean? I don't know, it just sounds really cool. So I had to think about it because I can't just say that to you. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6. It's not just humans who worship, it's angels who worship. And do you remember the vision in Isaiah chapter 6? I saw the Lord high and lifted up, right? Seated on a throne in a temple. His, the train of his robe filled the temple and there's smoke and there's fire. He's, he's arrayed in splendor and glory. And the angels are responding in worship to him. Isaiah wants to respond in worship to him. Everyone should respond in worship to him. If we see who he is and we acknowledge that, we worship. But even knowing who God is, is an act of his grace. That you know who he is, what he's like, and what he's done is in and of itself an act of grace. Because he is not obligated to reveal himself to us. But he has. So we respond worshipfully, right? Ascribe to the Lord. Uh, I don't like anyone else having the credit for something that I do. Certain season of the year, certain families like to ascribe the giving of certain gifts to uh, someone else. And I don't do that because daddy's name is going to be on that present, and I'm going to get that hug, okay? You're not ascribing what I have done to someone else, and I'm adamant about that. You do you. Daddy's name's on that present, because daddy bought that present, right? 
We are ascribing to the Lord, this is who he is. Glory is his. It's not ours. Strength, strength is his. We're not, we're not giving him strength that he didn't already have. We're admitting, right? Oh, God is strong. This is true, right? That's ascribing to the Lord's strength. God is glorious. That's just true. We are ascribing to him and not saying, oh, well, yeah, there's glory here and there's glory there and these gods have a little bit of glory and I have a little bit of glory. No, God has glory. So we, in worship, we ascribe. He has revealed his glory to us in his grace, in his word, in his creation. And we're like, yes, this glory, this is God's glory. The glory do his name. And then we do, we bring offerings. Well, what, well, then, what were the offerings then? The animals, the crops that were brought and handed over to the priests to offer that. And then we see the fact that Christ has fulfilled all of those things, right? His sacrifice, right? Just, uh, there's no other animal sacrifices necessary. There's no temple anymore. The ark is gone. The priesthood has ended, right? So, so we don't have those people and we don't have that place so we, don't, we can't offer those sacrifices. And then Hebrews says we don't have to, right? Because Jesus is our priest who offered the sacrifice of himself in the eternal places. So that old system was fulfilled in the person of Christ. But worship hasn't stopped. We still need priests to offer sacrifices where God will accept it. And do you know who the priests are? It's us. Believers have been made priests before God. A kingdom of priests. It's not me. Well, like I am because I'm a follower of Jesus, but it's also you. That you are a priest offering sacrifices to God. What are some of the sacrifices that you would offer? Well, Hebrews talks about it for us using the same theme of worship. Hebrews chapter 13. At the end of this whole thing about how, how there have been these like, catastrophic fulfillment changes in the worship of God. Gets through all of those different things. And then Hebrews 13, verse 15, speaking of Jesus, through him, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So in our speaking, we are priests offering acceptable worship to God. So as worshipers, it's not through another man. Right? You don't worship through me. We do worship through Christ, but yet Christ, who is our high priest, has made us priests, so we offer acceptable worship to God ourselves. That the words that come out of your mouth in acknowledging who God is, ascribing to him glory and strength, recounting the fact that he is the glorious creator, recounting to ourselves and to others, like the nations, those who are unbelievers, recounting to them the marvelous works of God is a sacrifice that we as priests offer to God displaying who he is and what he has done, and that is worship, the fruit of our lips, acknowledging his name. And then beyond that, it says, it goes on, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such, what's the word? 
sacrifices are pleasing to God. Have you thought about the fact that throughout your life you've been made a priest and that you offer sacrifices and that they're pleasing to God? Now, not every sacrifice was atoning. That's important. Let's have that little caveat, right? Not every sacrifice in the Old Testament was for the forgiveness of sins. And the sacrifices that we offer are not for the forgiveness of our sins. That's not the type of sacrifice that it's talking about. But there were sacrifices of gratitude. And that's what it's saying. Sacrifice of praise, not a sacrifice of atonement. Not to cover your sins. That's what Jesus' sacrifice did. But we're still priests offering sacrifices. But where? Here? In the building? I think we would need a whole lot more details about what our church buildings are supposed to look like if this was the new temple. But this building isn't the new temple. We are the new temple. We are being built up. Like, individually and corporately, we are the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells, where worship is offered. So wherever the temple goes, individually or corporately, is where we as priests offer sacrifices that are acceptable to God to be worshipers. Jesus makes that point in John chapter 4. That, that was one of the, maybe that'll be my text today. There have been a, maybe a dozen of them. And in John chapter 4, do you remember Jesus comes to the woman in Samaria at the well? And Samaritans, they worshipped on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews worshipped on Mount, no, it was Jerusalem. And they hated each other. <laughs> and they differed very starkly in worship. Who's right? Who's wrong? What's going on here? And she wants to know, like, well, where are we supposed to worship? And Jesus is like, well, actually, the time's coming. Matter of fact, the time is here. When those who worship the Father, they're not going to do it on Jerusalem, not going to do it on Gerizim, it's going to be everywhere. Those who worship the Father worship him in spirit and in truth. So wherever the priests go now, we're able to offer sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And that's how we're worshipers, priests offering sacrifices. And the place is everywhere. Worship is our response to our gracious God. And our gathering, because there is a corporate element of worship, that's biblical, and that's that's a gift from God as we worship together now. And we begin our gatherings, right? Uh, Admitting, uh, adoring God and offering that as a prayer where we come together. We're saying, well, who is God? This gracious God, who is he? What has he done? And we recount that to each other. And we, we, we graciously have received that knowledge and we worshipfully speak of who God is. And we sing about it. Because worship and song are always joined together. Not exclusively. Not all worship is singing, but our singing is supposed to be an expression of our worship to God. We're made to do that. And then, as Keith walked us through today, we gather as a people and we're like, you know what? We are a sinful people. And God has revealed his holiness and our sinfulness, so we acknowledge that. He has graciously shown us the distance between our sin and his righteousness. And yet he offers us mercy through Christ. So we worshipfully confess, repenting and trusting that Jesus' work is sufficient. So that, repenting and believing, is an act of worship. We do that as a body because we must Right? We've graciously received that information. Salvation is av- needed and available through Jesus Christ. So we worshipfully receive that, 
trusting in Christ alone, repenting of our sin. We sing, and then, then we recognize the fact that God has graciously revealed more than just right, his, our sin and his salvation. He has revealed just so much more to us across the pages of Scripture. That's an act of his grace. Well, in worship, we respond to God's grace. How do we respond corporately to the grace of God found in the revelation of his word? Well, we sing his word together. We, we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, right, making melody together. So we sing of God's word together. And if you remember, like, well, what exactly that passage mean? Had a whole sermon on it, right? We sing from the Psalms. We sing from other passages. We sing truth drawn from other passages. And I believe all of that is entirely biblical. But I'm not going to repeat that sermon right now. It's probably in the website somewhere. But we aren't just making stuff up. We're singing God's word. And we read God's word. We read it as a call to worship. We read it as a, what has God called us to? Uh, we've fallen short. We know that from God's word. Then we have the assurance of pardon from God's word. It's not just Keith being like, hey, y'all are forgiven. It's like, great, I love Keith. Good, honest brother. But I don't want him to tell me I'm forgiven. I want Jesus to tell me I'm forgiven. God has revealed himself into his word, so we sing it and we read it. And then what you're doing right now, right? We submit ourselves to the preaching of God's word, hearing from him. What does he say? And so we try to have the word as a centerpiece of our gathering because God has graciously given us his word. So we worshipfully sing it and read it and listen to it. We do that across our gathering. We talked last week about the fact that God has graciously provided access for us to his throne. So we worshipfully take advantage of that to go and pray before him. So we pray in our gatherings together and we call each other to prayer and we express those needs and remind ourselves of those different requests. So prayer is worship because God has graciously provided us access and so we worshipfully pray. And in him you live and move and have your being. Rain is from him, so if your crops are growing, whether you pluck them from your garden or you pluck them from Aldi, right, that is an act of God's grace across creation, right? If if my chickens are still alive, God's grace. If you find your chicken at Aldi, God's grace, right? Whatever money is in your bank account, What do you have that you have not received, physically and spiritually? But we recognize the fact, as God's people have always recognized, that there's not a single physical blessing that we have as human beings, let alone as God's people, that we have not received from his hand. If he feeds the lions, he certainly feeds us. If he takes care of the sparrows, he's certainly taking care of us. If he clothes the grass and the flowers, he's certainly the one who has clothed us. So we recognize there is not a single thing Like of a possession that I have that I have not received from God. That is an act of grace. So in worship, we respond by giving back. Right? Our offerings are a worshipful response to the grace of God that there's nothing that I have that he has not given to me. I want to offer back to him that. So you don't just give. You give worshipfully. Giving back as a steward, there's nothing that you have that you own. Right? That's, it's like, but we, we can miss that. 
So, and that's in Hebrews 13, right? Share what you have, such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Or 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which just is such an amazing passage where Paul's just like, look, when you give generously, like Jesus gave generously, when you give generously, you're praising God and those who receive praise God. So God's glory is magnified through the generous giving of his people. If you're like, what are, what are you talking about? Just go read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul obviously puts it better than I do. But we worship in our gatherings corporately. We're worshiping in our giving because everything that we have, we've received. And we have an opportunity to share that with others. And then the Lord graciously has instituted the sacraments for us, baptism and the Lord's Supper as a sign and seal, pointing our, drawing our attention to the truths of the gospel and reassuring us of the promises that are ours in Christ, right? The signs point, the seals promise. Do you remember, we've, you need refresher on that? That was January's sermons, or you can come to the sacraments class that, teaching on Sunday mornings. That is the grace of God for us in Jesus Christ, that he has said, hey, I, like, you need to remember this. And you're not just spiritual people that need spiritual things said to you. You're physical spiritual people, and so you need physical reminders, something that you can feel and something that you can see and something that you can taste or smell. So I'm going to give you water, and I'm going to give you bread, and I'm going to give you the cup so that these physical realities can point you to the gospel. It's a grace of God in extending those things to us as his people, and so we worshipfully receive and participate in those things. So we worship in that. You see, every, every aspect of our gathering like, is this worship, not just because it's happening here, but it's recognizing what is the grace of God that has come to us and how do we worshipfully respond as priests together. So there's this corporate element of worship that we try to build our gatherings. So it's appropriate that we call this worship gatherings because we gather and we gather to worship. Who is God? Like, how has he shown us grace? And how do we respond to those different things? But worship isn't just here. Worship certainly isn't just me. There's a corporate element of worship. We come together, and that's, it's a gift from God to us. But there's an individual act of worship as well, that you as a worshiper are to worship everywhere. It's not just the things that we say here at the gathering that are the worship of God. It's not just here that we, we offer those sacrifices of our lips, right? The, the fruit of our lips giving thanks, praise to his name. It's not just here that that happens. But wherever in your life you are a recipient of God's grace, there you are to worship. So we ask that question. Where in your life have you been a recipient of God's grace? Or to ask a better question, where in your life have you not been a recipient of God's grace? So that's how you can worship doing the dishes, or you can worship taking out the trash. You can worship mowing the lawn. You can worship in responding to your husband or your wife or your children or your parents or your neighbors, because God's grace has abundantly been poured out to you and to me everywhere. And so everywhere we can acknowledge and respond to God's grace. And in doing so, we are worshiping. And it's not just the fruit of our lips and the fruit of our wallets that are worship. It's not just the only things that you bring. Romans tells us that we bring far more. 
We're responding to what in worship? God's... You haven't gotten that part yet? Okay, somebody got it. I know sometimes it seems rhetorical and sometimes it doesn't, and I'm not very clear about that. Never been good at asking very clear questions. But I'm going to... We were responding to God's, thank you, okay, phew, God's grace and God's mercy are right clearly linked all for us in Christ. We have gifts and we don't have the punishment and the wrath that we deserve. So grace and mercy are these, these friends by which our salvation comes to us from God. So Paul says this, it's the turning point of the book of Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you, worshipers, followers of Jesus, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. He's acted first. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Why are we holy and acceptable to God? Because of Jesus. That's the mercy and the grace of God that has come to us. Everywhere you go, here and there, this afternoon, wherever you end up, throughout the day, whatever, whatever work is, whatever school is, like as a student, your school years start, worship is you acknowledging the grace of God in your life and then responding to that, responding by forgiving when you've been sinned against, responding by being grateful, responding by not complaining, right? all those different things, but that's a response to the grace of God to us. That's priestly worship work, offering yourself to God, not for atonement, but just in praise. This is your act of spiritual worship. We are worshipers as humans, but as Christians. Are you worshiping? When you, when you come to the gathering, is it just a place Is it just a time, or are you mindful of the grace of God that's been shown to you through Jesus Christ, and you're you're eager in every situation to respond to that grace in prayer and in singing and in service and in listening and in giving and all of those different things? Are you eager to do those type of things? Because it's not just in the act, and it's not just in the place. It never has been. That's why God speaks in his word to, to be like, you know what, if you don't come To worship by faith, you're not actually worshiping at all. Without faith, Hebrews says, it's impossible to please him. So without faith, it's impossible to worship him. So you don't just come and sing and read and stand and sit and kneel and whatever else and be like, oh, that's worship. No, it's not. Right? If if your heart is not in it, right? If there's not faith trusting who God is and what he's done for us, if there's not faith, then there's not worship. So we come to God and be like, well, this, I believe he is, he exists, that this is true. And that's all of life, where faith is just the, the, the heartbeat of worship. By faith, we recognize that it's not just the weather patterns, but actually God who sends that rain through the providence of weather patterns. <laughs> it's seeing God's hand behind those things in our health and in our sickness and our family in gain or loss. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Jesus warned, as Isaiah warned, about just the danger of lip service and worshiping only through traditions. You remember that? Is that Matthew, Mark 7? 
It's in Mark 7. They're worried about if their hands are clean. You all washed your hands before you came in, right? I don't know how you could possibly worship without clean hands. So we've got hand hand sanitizer at the door. Our bathroom's right there. Make sure you clean your hands. Well, that's a good idea, but it doesn't really affect our worship. And it didn't affect their worship, but they were obsessed with it. And Jesus said, well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he goes on to rebuke them about those type of things. We have an order in our service. We have a, a liturgy. We try to put some thought into that to, to flow from adoring God and confessing sin, reminding ourselves of the gospel, right? Singing these songs, hearing God's word, proclaiming those truths, and then preparing our hearts to come to God's word and then responding, whether that's at the table or song, and then going out from here. We try to have that flow, but you can come and you can just participate. If your heart's not in it, it's not worship. So what, as worshipers, corporately and individually, are we preparing ourselves for worship? Are we really making sure it is something from our hearts and not just from our lips? How easy it is to just sing a song and I just think about the melody or I think about the harmony or, or I start thinking about, for me it can be hard to start thinking about my sermon instead of thinking about worship. Or what's going on this afternoon? Or is he going to go to 1230 again today? I don't think so. God wants us, as we read, right, to love him with all of our heart. That's that's that worshipful motivation and attitude. And may he deliver us from heartless worship. May he grant us heart-filled worship. Because he doesn't just want time, right? And he doesn't just want songs. And he doesn't just want your money. All those different things are just reminders. He wants you all of you. And that's what is acceptable for us to offer to him through Christ by his spirit. You are a worshiper. Are you worshiping biblically? Which begins with recognizing that God has shown grace to you. And then you respond to that grace. Not to earn it. Not to keep it to enjoy it and gratitude, right? Do you see the difference? Boy, if so often we're just, we just slip into that kind of pagan worship. Let's not do that. Let's glorify God, offering ourselves as living sacrifices here and as we leave. And then as we do that, like David, right? It's not just so that just me and just my family and just our church, but that we would call out to the nations, call out to others, come and worship, see the grace of God and respond to it. Father, you are worthy of our worship. Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God, your disciples worshiped you and you received it because you are worthy of our worship. And when all is said and done, we read, I think it was Revelation 5, we'll all gather together, all of your people and all of the angels and everybody, and we're going to worship you. We're going to acknowledge perfectly and permanently and forever that you have been gracious to us. 
And we're going to speak those true things, and you will be pleased and you will be praised. Everyone will acknowledge who you are and what you have done. And we have the privilege of doing that on a daily basis as you have made us worshipers. Please teach us to worship you. Thank you that you receive it because of Jesus. Amen.